You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. Later on in this episode, the Pacific step-ups climate fallout. Genevieve chats with Tess Newton-Kane to unravel the recent Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu. Sophia Patel returns to Oz to discuss gender and counterterrorism. But first up, anti-government protests continue to wreak havoc in Hong Kong. Louisa had the opportunity to interview Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project, to get her take on the implications of the ongoing demonstrations. So last week, uh, the Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam said that she would move a motion in the legislature to formally withdraw the extradition bill. So some critics say that this could still be blocked by the pro-Beijing majority in the Legislative Council. So what are your thoughts on the withdrawal of the extradition bill and where do you think it'll go from here? Well, I think it's a very widely held view in Hong Kong that even if the extradition bill is completely withdrawn, that it's too little too late. If Carrie Lam had taken that move at the very beginning uh, of this crisis, uh, then we probably would not be at the point uh, that we are today. Uh, which uh, which truly is um, a uh, potentially a major turning point uh, in in Hong Kong. So I think there really is a question about what more Carrie Lam might do. Uh, there have been other demands from the protesters. For example, they would like uh, an independent inquiry into the violence by the police. Uh, they want um, the uh, those are the protesters who have been arrested uh, to be released um, and their records cleared. And uh, of course, then they have uh, demanded other things that I think are much more difficult for for Beijing to give. Uh, for example, really having uh, direct democracy legislate uh, the election of uh, of their own uh, chief executive, and 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 I don't think that that will happen. But we really are at a point where Carrie Lam has just made a very, very small concession, and protesters in Hong Kong have made it clear that's not what they want. Uh, they've written their own national anthem. Uh, they're walking around the streets with uh, with American flags, which uh, unfortunately provides some with an image that suggests that the United States is indeed behind this movement in Hong Kong, which is a complete fabrication. This is very much an indigenous movement. So I'm just going to touch on one of those points that you made just then about the one of the four other demands. Um, so they've asked to get the label of rioters removed. Um, and I think that's a really interesting uh, take on the use of language around the protests. So there was a recent document um, that was sent to foreign media um, asking them to label the the protesters as sort of terrorists and and that they're hostile and I think it's having a really interesting effect on overseas Chinese diaspora as well, um, especially here in Australia where we've had seen some recent conflicts on campus and we've seen protests and and violence um, sort of pop up here as well. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you think the the language around the protests is being used by the PRC and in Hong Kong and, and overseas as well? Well, the PRC has been engaging in a fairly sophisticated uh, media effort 
uh, to try and control the the narrative and target the narrative to different audiences. Um, and, and of course, it's not just in Hong Kong. It is really around the world. They want the Chinese diaspora to stand up in cities around the world and support the PRC and condemn uh, these protests. We see very active uh, efforts on uh, social media like Twitter on, on face, uh, Facebook. Uh, there have been some examples of some of these accounts uh, that are controlled by representatives of the PRC that are actually being taken down, uh, which is, is really the first, I think, for some of these leading social media organizations to recognize that their platforms are being used in order to advance the PRC's interest in controlling Hong Kong. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, and I think it connects as well to one of the other points you were making before about um, the influence of the West potentially uh, in stirring up the the conflict that could be in Hong Kong. And can you tell me a little bit more about how um, that the PRC sees that sort of hostile Western forces um, that are currently that they're trying to shape the narrative around in Hong Kong? Well, PRC fears of interference by Western hostile forces has a very, very long history. Uh, Of course, it also uh, really is connected to the narrative about the century of humiliation uh, in China and the the Western incursion into into China. And this is uh, a story that under Xi Jinping has really been revived and become quite central to the Communist Party's um, narrative in, in, in China. But of course, since then, um, we've had many episodes of uh, what were called color revolutions around the world um, uh, in countries in Central Asia um, and in the, in the Middle East. And this is exactly what Beijing has called uh, this movement in Hong Kong. It has called it a, a color revolution. And when the color revolutions first began in Central Asia, uh, the Chinese leadership was was truly uh, panicked. There were uh, major investigations inside China as to whether uh, the United States was behind these and whether it, the the goal of uh, of the United States was in fact um, to create a kind of culture, uh, excuse me, a kind of color revolution uh, in China. And so the leadership has long believed, even before Xi Jinping came to power, that the United States seeks to create uh, instability in China uh, and overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. Sometimes it's a, a peaceful evolution strategy, and other times it's seen as far more aggressive. That's really, really interesting because I think it's um, quite fascinating to look at the, especially Australia's response to the Hong Kong protests, um, where Australia's been very diplomatic about it. They've always um, maintained the the values of the one China, two systems policy, but there's no one has come out officially to, to condemn the violence by the police or um, there's other factors such as the changing of the garrison that happened in August where people fear that there's been an increase in troops. So I think it's been an interesting um, kind of contradiction where I think the PRC is afraid that the, there's the hostile Western forces, but perhaps um, countries certainly like Australia aren't coming out and actually condemning the actions there. 
seems to me that uh, some countries are cautious. They want to pick their fights with China. Australia is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. There are issues that the government in Canberra believes are very vital to Australian interests. Take, for example, foreign interference um, and speaks out, um, I think, very clearly about that. Uh, when it comes to uh, other issues uh, such as values, um, uh, freedom of navigation, I think Australia has also been quite outspoken. Uh, when it comes to what's going on in Xinjiang with the um, imprisonment, really, in concentration camps of very large numbers, of likely over one million people, um, I believe Australia has said less, and, and it's definitely also uh, the case in uh, in Hong Kong. But there are many things that governments can say without condemning one country, two systems. Uh, because indeed, Hong Kong is part of China. Uh, there may be some of these protesters that are advocating full independence, uh, but yeah, the U.S. position is, is not supporting Hong Kong independence. But it is supporting uh, a return by China to its commitment under the basic law. Um, and that is uh, one country, two systems and treating the people of Hong Kong uh, separately uh, from China, protecting the liberties and the freedoms uh, that they have. And indeed, over the last few years, those have really been eroded. Uh, and the reason why I think we see so many young people on the street in Hong Kong is that they fear for their future, and, and not just theirs, of course, but the future of their children. They think that Beijing government is not likely to honor any of its commitments. And so the main commitment it made, of course, to Hong Kong with the preservation of autonomy, and it looks like that is slipping away. I think you touched on a really interesting point there about the fear for the future, and I think that brings us nicely over to Taiwan, who are also fearful for their future, and I think it's having a really interesting impact on the potential outcome for the Taiwan elections that's happening next January. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about how the Hong Kong protests have that effect on, are having an effect on Taiwan and how it's affecting um, President Tsai Ing-wen's popularity fair to say that there has been um, a very low level of support for one country, two systems in Taiwan um, uh, for a long time. Uh, originally, Deng Xiaoping created this idea of one country, two systems for Taiwan, but then it ended up implemented in Hong Kong. And uh, Taiwan, of course, sees itself quite differently. Um, uh, Taiwan has never been under the PRC control, uh, and it has had a truly autonomous government that elects its own leaders and its own uh, legislators. But this crisis in, uh, in Hong Kong um, has really brought to the forefront and, and the, to the attention of, of the 23 million people in Taiwan that uh, this is not a, a goal that they want for themselves. And Xi Jinping, even earlier this year on January 2nd, gave a very comprehensive speech about uh, policy toward Taiwan and reiterated once again that one country, two systems um, is the goal in, in Taiwan. So what has happened now in Taiwan is the President Tsai Ing-wen has quite adroitly used this um, fear of one country, two systems, and the situation in Hong Kong to tell the public, uh, the voters, that uh, it's not only dangerous for people to talk about one country, two systems, but it's really risky to talk about the um, 1992 consensus, which was essentially agreement between the Chinese Communist Party and the KMT or Nationalist Party, that the two sides of the strait belonged to one China, but that they would agree to disagree about what they called it. Is it the Republic of China, that is Taiwan, or the People's uh, Republic of China? 
And that consensus held when Mayinja was president. And Taiwan, when she came to power, did not accept this notion of a 1992 consensus. And that's one of the reasons why the Chinese reacted strongly to her um, and cut off the official ties and have since ramped up uh, economic, political, and military pressure on her. So Taiwan, in talking about the one country, two systems, and equating it with the 1992 consensus, has made more uh, people who could potentially support the KMT candidate, who was mayor of Gaoshan Han Guomu, made them somewhat concerned and suspicious and uh, maybe uh, a little unwilling to uh, bring to power a KMT president. Han Guomu, in turn, interestingly, um, uh, realized that he uh, had to say something very strongly because of the uh, protests in Hong Kong. So even before he became candidate, he was at a rally in Kaohsiung, and he said that there would never be one country, two systems implemented in Taiwan. And he even said in English, over my dead body. <laughs> so he is trying to bring these voters back uh, to the KMT to ensure that they vote for him. Um, so for Taiwan, uh, this is it's very important right now because of the political implications of the upcoming elections in January, as you said, but it will have a life far beyond those elections because Taiwan also sees that issues like one country, two systems, and maybe even the 1992 consensus have existential implications for the people who live in Taiwan. I just want to ask finally, because you are in Australia at the moment, about any regional implications. I, I think it might be a stretch to say that, that Hong Kong will have regional implications all the way over here to Australia, but definitely in the Pacific, China's um, sort of inching forward, I suppose, and trying to create uh, connections there, especially with critical infrastructure. So is there any regional fear or regional worries that about this, um, the slowly encroaching effect of the PRC? I think that there's concern in many countries about China's ambitions, its intentions. China has the ambition to be the regional hegemon, the dominant power of this region. Uh, it does not feel comfortable in a region that the United States is so powerful, um, has so many allies and so many forces deployed. And so I think it's quite clear that the Chinese want to um, encroach on many countries uh, through economic levers uh, at this point, and that's in part because China's strongest uh, component of its power right now is economic. The military is growing, but I think China wants to achieve its goal really without going to, to war. Uh, so China wants to use things like its Belt and Road Initiative and these infrastructure uh, projects to, to win over support. Um, and gain political leverage uh, over over countries. Uh, and it, its progress is uneven. There are some countries that uh, I think um, are very happy with some of these projects, the money that China is lending, um, and there are others that I think are concerned about the debt that's growing um, in their country or maybe projects that um, are not uh, going to be very high quality or labor um, that is being sent from China rather than the transferring of skills uh, to local labor. Uh, but for Xi Jinping, this is not a strategy that he will back away from. So I think there there are concerns about China and its uh, and its intentions around the region. At the same time, no country wants 
an adversarial relationship with China. Uh, countries want to benefit from China's economic largesse and try to channel it in a way that they can extract the most uh, benefits from it. Um, and they're concerned, I think every country is concerned about the growing rivalry uh, between the United States and China, um, especially in this region. And most countries say they just don't want to choose. Uh, they want to have uh, a good relationship with both countries. Fantastic. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you. Dr. Tess Newton-Kane, Principal at TNC Pacific Consulting, joined the podcast to talk to Genevieve about Australia's reputation in the Pacific following the Tuvalu Forum and environmental security in the region. Hi there, Tess. Thanks so much for joining us today on Policy, Guns and Money. Today, I thought we could discuss Australia's Pacific step up following the Pacific Island Forum recently in Tuvalu. And I might ask some questions about other events going on around the region if we have some time after. So can you give us some, uh, our listeners a little rundown about the most recent PIF meeting and the communique that was being debated during the forum that's been getting so much media attention recently? Well, as we know, the leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum met recently in Tuvalu, and as is always the way, a communique was issued as a result of that meeting following the leaders' retreat. It would appear from what we've heard subsequently that the process by which that communique was arrived at was a little bit contentious and possibly heated at times, and that largely came down to the the part of the communique and the um, associated declaration, which was focused on the regional position in relation to climate change and in particular issues that the Pacific Island leaders were calling for that meant that um, the Australian delegation and to a lesser extent the New Zealand delegation were concerned about the nature of that communique. And so what we have is, as is always the way, a negotiated outcome. But obviously, as we've seen in the media coverage and some of the statements that have come out during and after, that there's been a bit of concern about the process and what that means for ongoing relationships in the region. Yeah, so what was your impression of the reaction around the different Pacific islands since this meeting? Has there been maybe an unwillingness to work with Australia on these issues in the future or are you seeing something else? I think what we've seen is an expression of a number of things. There was certainly a fair amount of frustration expressed that Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke and the other members of the delegation were not able or willing to to stand as, as readily side by side with Pacific Island leaders around issues such as um, a transition away from coal-powered energy, returning to the Green Climate Fund and not using the Kyoto credits to achieve Paris targets. Those were the three, three things that the Pacific Island leaders were concerned about in terms of Australia's position. And there's certainly been a fair amount of frustration that Australia was not prepared to um, move on any of those things. I think there's also a certain amount of sadness that the the language of family, which has been and continues to be used by Australian policymakers when talking about engagement with the Pacific, I think there was a, a degree of sadness and possibly confusion that that there was the Australian use of that term was done in such an acultural way or in a way that was not very culturally appropriate or particularly culturally literate. And I also think that there's a degree of reinvigoration of the political sense of regionalism and a reinvigoration on the part of some leaders and senior people that these meetings that the Pacific Islands Forum is is meant to be a space in which people come together to to grapple with big political issues and, and how that they're going to be addressed at the regional level and that 
part of the, the robustness of that means that um, it's not always going to be about everyone agreeing to start with. But more importantly, neither is it going to be that one or two or even three or four people get to hold total sway over the entire group that smaller nations or those that maybe wouldn't normally be perceived as natural leaders or even or more likely consider that describe themselves in that way, that they are able to stand up for what they believe in and that those smaller island states can come together and, and make very clear to countries like Australia and New Zealand who previously have held an awful lot of sway largely by virtue of their size and the amount of development assistance they put into the region. Yeah, I definitely agree that that sense of despair and sadness really came out in the media after um, the PIF forum wrapped up. Um, But I do agree with you that that I think there's real value in this multilateral forum of Pacific Island nations gaining a lot of strength on these particular issues. As Australia goes forward, how do you think they could rectify their relationship um, and perhaps their reputation in the Pacific after it's been maybe tarnished after this forum? Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen, and, and I'm not aware of this having happened yet, is that People need to recognize that some really serious mistakes were made and they need to recognize this for what it is, which is a very significant um, diplomatic uh, misstep. And I think that they need to think much more carefully. And and the the foreign minister of Vanuatu in a sort of an open letter in The Guardian um, a couple of weeks ago made it very clear. He said, you know, we're looking forward to seeing you next year in Vanuatu and please come better prepared. Please Mm. come able to be better involved in these um, conversations and and come ready to take part in in a process that that is conducted in a Pacific way and following Pacific modes of engagement. And I think that was one of the things that was really missing is just this this ability to engage in a Pacific context and and, and recognize that there are ways and of doing things and ways of not doing things and that the the Australian delegation from what I can gather came across as as being quite turned deaf in that respect and so I think there definitely needs to be a lot more work done about understanding you know how you use particular forms of language in the Pacific how you engage how you engage with people's culture how you engage with people's history and and how you really listen deeply to what people are telling you. Um, The Pacific, when it came to this issue about standing together on climate change, the Pacific Island leaders never asked for any money. Nobody asked Australia to hand over $500 million or any other amount of money. What they were asking for was political and moral solidarity. And Australia was not able to do that. And I think there needs to be more on the table. Uh, they, the Australian delegation w- should have had, or in future we would hope to see, that they have more to offer than simply playing the final card, which is, well, you know, what about all that aid we give you? I mean, there were other things that could have been put on the table that could have been negotiated, but from from what what I've been told by people that were very close to these processes, the Australians didn't come with anything to offer to the Pacific uh, as a way of demonstrating that good faith and that moral and political solidarity. Yeah, I'd very much agree. Um, I also just wanted to ask you about a survey which has been released this week by the Australia Institute that said 77% of Australians think that climate change is occurring. Considering this, how do you think the Australian government should approach the PIF meeting next year if they can't use the justification that it's 
politically unpalatable to maybe progress climate change further? I think what your question illustrates is a point that I've been grappling with for a while, which is the disconnect between domestic policy in Australia and how Australia wants to behave in the region as part of its foreign policy. And I think that it's becoming increasingly clear to Pacific Island leaders that this disconnect disconnect exists and that it is quite harmful. Um, I think the, the people that are responsible for prosecuting Australia's foreign policy need to be a lot more upfront and a lot less disingenuous about that disconnect between domestic and foreign policy. The climate change space is one, but there are others as well. And I think if what we're going to see is a continued interest in the Australian media and the Australian Academy and commentariat about how Australia behaves in the Pacific, then it's going to be even more important that those two things are somehow reconciled. Now, my my response to the, the survey that you've referenced is, well, those people had an opportunity uh, earlier this year to exercise their vote in order to bring about representation in their national parliament that would take forward their concerns. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. So, you know, for, for those people that, you know, if those people are concerned about climate change and the Pacific or even climate change here in Australia, they have access to political representatives. They have access to means of lobbying them and advocating for that position. And, you know, I would encourage them to make use of those avenues. And hopefully then if we can get the domestic, if, if the domestic policy does become a bit more um, appropriate, that, that will then give Morrison more room to move when he tries to operate in the foreign policy sphere. But um, certainly when it came to transition away from coal, I don't see that, that he could ever have offered that. Having said that, there were other things that he could have offered up. He could have said that there would be a return to supporting the Green Climate Fund. And he could have said that they would walk away from using Kyoto credits to achieve the emissions targets. He chose not to offer either of those. And my feeling is that if he'd been able to offer those as a way of saying, yes, we've listened, we've heard and we get it and we're we're on your side, here is our demonstration of that, then I think the result may have been quite different. Mm, And I think they're really good points to remember as we like look towards Vanuatu's meeting next year as well. Um, Maybe as a final question, um, we've got the Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainamarama out this week. Do you think that he'll have climate change on his agenda? Um, I would think so. I mean, he, you know, he has he occupies a significant space on the global stage um, in relation to advocating for climate change action and climate change um, policy. And so he will he will obviously want to make use of this visit to further that position that he holds. And obviously, um, the UN Climate Summit is coming up very soon, which Prime Minister Bainimarama will be attending. It's not completely clear where the Prime Minister Morrison will be attending that summit. So I imagine that that Mr. Bainimarama will have that on his agenda. I don't think it'll be the only thing on his agenda, but I'd be very surprised if he didn't have something to say on that score. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us here today on Policy, Guns and Monies. It's been really insightful and I think really important points as we think about how we can better engage in PIF in the future. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Finally, Aspie non-resident fellow Sophia Patel is back visiting the land down under and she took some time to chat with Lisa on her research into gender and counterterrorism, discuss PhD life and her thoughts on Brexit. 
Sophia, great to have you back in Australia. It's amazing to be here, although it's very cold and I'm very unprepared for it. Well, hopefully it warms up soon is all I can say. Fingers crossed before I leave. <laughs> so it's really great to have you back. For So for those that don't know, um, you spent a couple of years working at Aspie as an analyst and at the moment you remain a non-resident fellow. So it's great to have you here talking about some of the research that you've been doing over the last 12 months. So you commenced a PhD at King's College and I understand that's focused on gender and counter-terrorism. It's an issue you were doing a bit of work on while you were at Aspie. Uh, you put out a fantastic report a couple of years ago called The Sultanate of Women, exploring female roles in perpetrating and preventing violent extremism. So I thought I'd get underway and ask you, did that research prompt you to undertake your PhD and do some research in this area? Or was it something else that sort of sparked the topic that you're looking at? Oh, thanks, Lisa. No, um, you're right. It, um, it was the research that I uh, undertook here initially. Um, I was really interested in, as the title says, the female roles in preventing and perpetrating violent extremism and terrorism, which, as we know, it's not a new thing. You know, women have been participating in political violence for decades in different types of conflicts. But what surprised me, which is why I undertook the research at Aspie in the first place, because in the policy world and the practitioner world, people kept responding to the ideas of women in political violence with surprise. And that just seemed strange, considering the large body of research that documented that's not the case. So, yeah, the, the PhD is sort of a continuation of that, um, but it's more focused on counting violent extremism rather than the perpetration of uh, terrorism and violent extremism. And it's looking at specifically the uh, phenomenon of returnees from Islamic State and how the British government and the Australian government are dealing with that phenomenon and how uh, our gender biases affect such decisions, or if they do. It's a pretty timely topic to be looking at at the moment. And as you said, gender is perhaps this area, either there's been misconceptions in the way that we've looked at the roles of women in the past. But I wanted to go back a little bit to what you said there about looking at sort of Australian and UK government responses to the issue of returnees. We've had some very high profile cases here in Australia that have been in the media, and I understand also in Britain as well. What sort of levels of interest have there been in the research you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very media-friendly topic. There's been a lot of uh, content um, in both countries about it, um, but the problem is no one really knows how to deal with the problem and what the solutions are. So it's really at the early stages in terms of figuring out the legal, um, criminal justice um, responses to these kinds of things based on evidence or lack thereof. Whilst it is really topical, people aren't really sort of obviously at the media level, they're not going to tackle the deeper academic questions, which is what I'm going to try and do, but hopefully make it palatable to um, a wider audience than just the academy. But yeah, no, I think you're right. It's it's very topical. People are interested in it. And that's a good thing, which means that, you know, hopefully the research will have a good um, sounding board in the future. Are there any preliminary findings that you can share with us at this stage that perhaps, you know, have surprised you or were expected? Well, I would be reluctant to say I've got any preliminary findings as it's taken me a year to figure out the actual question. Um, but, you know, there's trends and there's patterns that um, I've seen and that I'm sure people in the field will also attest to. And that's until now or even until, well, I'm sure as you would know as well with the, your experience with WPS and within the CT and CVE approaches to um, women and men in, in the in, in political violence, um, they tend to take a gender blind approach. And that sort of has affected um, all our responses to returning foreign fighters, whether it's societal, um, legal, judicial. And um, so that's not surprising, but it 
it is might be it might be a preliminary finding, but I'd like to take that further, and I'd like to explore issues of masculinity and femininity uh, when it comes to designing our responses. So that's something I'm going to I'm interested in and looking further into. And so you've chosen Australia and the UK as I guess sort of case studies. Are there any real similarities or differences between sort of the the context and the approaches that the the two governments are taking to this issue? I haven't done a deep dive into um, the actual uh, sort of documents and structures that both governments are are using at the moment. But from my you know baseline knowledge and understanding of the field, yes, I would say there is a similar approach. And um, I think a lot of European, a lot of actual international countries are um, guilty of similar things, which always goes back to this sort of notion that we, based on gender stereotypes and how we deal with men and women, and that's not just in terms of violent extremism and terrorism, but, you know, gender norms shape our responses to and, and our ideas of how men and women should act and do act. And so, you know, we've seen actual cases in, I think, um, the Netherlands and Belgium where men and women who are, who have, you know, carried out corresponding crimes um, or who have been both, both of them have been in Islamic State, have returned. The woman has had either a lesser sentence or has not been um, sentenced to prison, whereas the man has. Um, And I've seen, I think we will probably see trends like this in other countries as well. But in terms of Australia and the UK, um, yeah, I mean, the media discourse as well in both countries has been pretty similar in terms of framing the women as jihadi brides, duped, coerced, men as being inherently dangerous. So those are the sort of similarities that I've seen. But in terms of the actual structural responses, I haven't done the right research yet. No, that's okay. And I guess, and and noting that you're still in the really early stages of research, are there any bits of advice you'd have for Australian policy practitioners or government officials who are perhaps working in the the CT space in terms of considering gender as as something relevant to their work and, and the policy recommendations that they're putting forward? I think, again, I'm being very cautious here without, you know, I don't want to um, say anything too soon before I've done the research before I actually know, you know, what's what people are trying to do, what people are, you know, what both of the governments have been working on in this space. But I think as long as all responses are rooted in a human rights-based uh, process um, and that realise that, you know, this is an intergenerational challenge, it's a... Um, going to be a long-lasting challenge and so all responses must be suitable to tackle these long-term issues that will affect people now and in the next 15 to 20 years noting how many children have been involved in this then they would be on the, along the right lines but it's definitely a conversation that needs to be multilateral it has to involve multiple agencies multiple departments not just intelligence not just law enforcement but you know I think they are doing that but you know and the gender aspect of it they would welcome you know response uh, best practice from non-security environments, I imagine, to see how gender mainstreaming has been implemented in different ways in different fields. So quite a multi-dimensional, yeah, um, sort of multi-agency say. approach yeah. is needed there. I guess just moving on a little bit from your research, um, I think the thought of undertaking a PhD scares a lot of people. I certainly know it scares me. How are you finding it, given that you've kind of been a, I guess you've, you've been back in London for a year, you're, you're working at quite a prestigious institution. Any, any thoughts or reflections you wish to share with anyone uh, who might be embarking on thinking about doing a PhD? Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It, it is hard. And I think I, uh, it is challenging. I came in quite naively, I think, because I'd worked in the field for about five years and I'd uh, done a master's. And so I thought, OK, you know, I understand the academic side of things. Relatively speaking, I feel like I understand the policy and practice side of things. It's been a slog. Um, and it's, as I said, it's taken me almost a year to actually get 
to grips with an actual question. It's a privilege to be there. It's an absolute honour to be able to work um, with colleagues at King's and to learn from them and to be an environment of such um, like vitality and of learning. And I think it's incredibly special to be able to have the opportunity to deep dive into a field I'm so passionate about and I'm so interested in without time constraints. Well, there are some time constraints, but, you know, I don't think I'll be able to do that at any other time. So I wouldn't say it's all doom and gloom, but also, you know, I moved back from Australia. I moved house. I got engaged. So there's all these other personal things which I, uh, you know, probably distracted me a bit. It is like a hard job, I would say. And, you know, you shouldn't take it lightly. A lot of work I've got to do now. But you're glad you started? I'm definitely glad I started. Definitely have learned a lot about myself, about how to work, how, you know, what motivates me, how to be productive, things like that. For me, it was very much to do with the fact that I wanted to feel valid and legitimate in my field of work. And I thought the academic angle would um, give me that um, confidence, extra knowledge, I suppose. It's not for everyone, but yeah, I'm definitely glad I did it while I'm doing it. Fantastic to hear that you're enjoying it. And I guess one last question, since you're back in Australia briefly, but you've been in London for the last year or so, any final thoughts on what's happening with Brexit right now? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. And you're going to be disappointed. It's a very boring answer. I'm sick. I'm tired of it. It's just, I think, made it very clear that we have a useless and incompetent set of MPs who, quite frankly, feel like they're more interested in their own careers than actually putting the um, needs of the constituents before, yeah, their own career paths. And I just want it to be done now, you know. I'm just, yeah, I think that's what most people are thinking, which is sad because, you know, there was a lot of oomph trying to change the decision, trying to do different things, but it's just wasting everybody's time and we need to get on with it. Well, on that note, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Sad and- <laughs> to finish on. I was gonna, that's terrible. <laughs> and um, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Okay, thanks so much. It's been really lovely. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. You can always send us feedback by leaving a review on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>